All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 9 as we uh, continue to our series in the, on the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. You know, as God always does in his sovereignty, I believe that this passage is a perfect passage for us to look at this morning. Uh, just, it's, it's why we're here. It's the most fundamental thing, I think. Um, and so it's, I think, very strategic that the Lord gave us this timing in this passage. You know, um, Vince Lombardi is the storied coach of the Green Bay Packers, and he was famous for, on the first day of practice, with these professional football players who had grown up playing football, holding up a football and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. We're going to start with the basics, and you can't get more basic than that. And I don't think that you can get more basic than this passage that we're looking at this morning. You know, we are so influenced by the culture in which we live. And this culture doesn't get greatness right. What what does this culture consider to be greatness? Throwing a long touchdown pass? uh, Throwing a a 95 mile an hour fastball? uh, Hitting a home run? uh, Being really wealthy? being successful, maybe having a position of power, uh, maybe being beautiful or handsome. You know, we just, when we find out maybe some of the background of some of these people that we think are so great, we find out they're really not so great. So if you take a, uh, I mean, because we live in this culture, and this is on your outline, by the way, that gives us this twisted definition of what greatness is, we have a deep need to understand Jesus' view of greatness. So before we read our passage, let's remember a little bit where we've been in Mark and where we are. So earlier in this chapter, uh, we saw the transfiguration of Jesus, where his humanity is kind of peeled back, and, and we see his divinity in such a spectacular way. And then with Peter, James, and John, he walks down this mountain and, and finds the other disciples in an argument with the scribes as to why they were not able to heal this man, uh, this man who had come to them, who had asked for healing for his son. And, and to be freed from the demons that controlled him. They weren't able to, but Jesus delivers this little boy and tells his disciples the reason they had no power is because they were relying on their own strength and not God's strength. Jesus' 12 disciples are in his 24-7 school of discipleship. And Jesus' goal for them was to understand who he is and why he came to earth, and also that their lives would be transformed, beginning with having a heart of faith and leading them to to live in a radically different way from the way they'd been living. And so after the disciples' inability to deliver this boy, Jesus takes them apart again to teach them. And so on your outline, you have this at the top. Jesus encourages humility and childlike trust as crucial to living for his kingdom and ministering for him. This was a sharp contrast to the oppressive approach of the political and religious leaders around them. 
The power of humility lies in the fact that it pursues God's purposes and doesn't boast in its own strength, but trusts instead in him who is infinitely resourceful. So follow along in your Bibles as we read from Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. This is God's word. Well, the disciples' understanding of Jesus' mission still isn't there. Jesus again tells them he's going to be killed and raised from the dead. And, uh, and look at their response in verse 32. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Yeah, because he's told them about it so many times. They still don't get it. And then they argue over who's gonna be the greatest. I could see these guys coming down the mountain and Peter saying, you know guys, I, I'm sure it's gonna be me because I'm the leader of the group. And uh, James and John, who he was with, I don't know if you know their nickname, was Sons of Thunder. I'm guessing that they let Peter know what they thought about that idea of him being the leader and of what they thought that one of them should be the leader. And all the other disciples, I'm sure, had ideas of, of what they wanted to, why they should be the one to lead the, the disciples and who was the greatest and who would sit next to Jesus. Jesus knew what was going on. You couldn't pull the wool over his eyes. How ironic that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die on a cross and these guys are arguing about who's gonna be the greatest. Are you kidding me? That's probably what Jesus was thinking. Even though, this is on your outline, uh, even though we live on the other side of these events, namely Jesus' death and resurrection from the disciples, we are still in need of being delivered from these same attitudes. The same attitudes the disciples had. 
Jesus knew it was time for some serious teaching. And he knew if they were going to succeed from his perspective, they had to get this lesson right. And so, uh, and they really don't get it until after Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's so easy for us, being a part of this culture, being human, to slide into the, th- into the thinking that it's all about us, that it's about me and, and God giving me eternal life and, and my health, and, it, and I come to Jesus because he needs to heal me and to give me more prestige, to give me more power, whatever it is. As we come into this beautiful place to worship, I think this passage is such a great reminder for us as to what we're, what we're here for. We're here to worship God. But then we go out from here and we are his witnesses. That's what he calls us to be, right? That's the beginning of the Church of Acts. We are a continuation of the Church of Acts. We're, we're writing Acts 29, if you will. We continue to write it. And to be his witnesses, to share Jesus with our family, to share him with our friends and our neighbors. We're, we're, we're all to be involved in the work of the ministry. Uh, that's the job of, of me as a pastor, to train you to do the work of the ministry. Jesus is teaching the disciples what their attitude should be specifically as they minister. And their first attitude is that we're to minister with a servant's heart. That's number one on your outline. Just like it, it said in verse 35, Jesus said it like this, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. This was countercultural to what the disciples had heard. And it's countercultural for us, right? The natural thing for us is to dominate. That's, that's, we're wired that way because of our sin nature and who we are. And initially, the disciples weren't able to do this. Remember, even on the night before Jesus died, what happened in the upper room? They were so busy arguing over who's going to be the greatest that they didn't wash each other's feet when they came in. There was nobody there to do it. And so no one would lower themselves to be a servant to do that. That's normally what would happen in a, in a Palestine home in the first century. There would be somebody there to wash everybody's feet as they came in. You know, they didn't sit at table and chairs like we do. They, they had a low table and they would be they would be up next against to it with like a leaning on their elbow and then eating with their other hand. And so the feet of like two people down, if they look back, were right behind them. This was not really a, 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 they would smell each other's feet. You needed to have feet washed when you came in and nobody was willing to do that. And so God, the son, washes the feet of his disciples And then Jesus says after he washes their feet in John 13, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In other words, we are all called to this kind of radical living. This isn't about what you do for your job. Some of you are over a lot of people in your jobs. But this is the way we're, this is a heart attitude that we're to have as we serve those that we are, that are above us and as we serve those who are underneath us in terms of a status in life. We're to serve everyone. This is about the heart attitude. It's, it, it, do you have a place of humble service? What are you doing to serve? 
to, to serve Jesus, to serve the people around you. I, I want to tell you about a man who was a member here for many years when I first came. His name was Harvey Merchant. Some of you will know that name. A few of you will. Um, Harvey would, would uh, cook breakfast at the men's prayer breakfast and then uh, on Saturday mornings. And then um, one Saturday, I ran into him, and it was quite a while after the breakfast, and I asked him what he was doing. And he said, I'm just walking around picking up the trash. And, you know, we have a pretty big campus. We have like seven and a half acres. And I was like, Harvey, thanks for doing that today. And he goes, ah, no problem. And I, I saw him again doing it. I found out he was doing it every Saturday. And, and, and he was doing it. He'd been doing it for years, if not decades. And who saw that? Who asked for, who, who ever acknowledged him doing that? No one. But you know what? People would come on this campus and, and I know that I had and just thought, boy, it's, it's really beautiful here. And someone's, it, it just looks so nice. Did Harvey get credit for picking up the trash? No. But he did it and it was like a hidden service that, that was done for the sake of the body where everybody profited from that in such a beautiful way. And so if you see something that needs to be done, do it. If it's a big project like a remodel, you might want to talk to one of the pastors and run it by us. But there are plenty of little things that just need to be done. You know, when Martin Luther um, was asked to renounce what he had been teaching, and this was kind of the kickoff to the Reformation, he said he would not renounce it. And this was his quote exactly. He said, uh, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I love that. Because all of us should be captive to the word of God. And like Martin Luther, and this is on your outline, as believers, we're captive to God's word and we're to embrace that captivity to him through obedience. Harvey owned a mechanic shop, but this applies to homemakers and it applies to teachers, it applies to executives, it applies to craftsmen, it applies to students, it applies to every single one of us, no matter what our position is. We are all called to radical servanthood. This is the way true firstness is in God's eyes. Remember Jesus' words shouldn't surprise us. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. The heart of God is that he resists the proud. And then what comes next? and he gives grace to the humble. That's the heart of God. Think with me about the two great commands that Jesus gave us. Uh, and these commands, this passage, I think, is really just a restatement of those two great commands. So when Jesus was asked to summarize the law, the first thing he said is, is, is in answering to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Really, he's saying, what is a successful, he's answering the question, what does a successful human look like if, a, if they're living a life the way I, God, designed them to live life? 
the first thing they're to do is love the Lord the God, their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. That person must love me with all their heart, God's saying. In other words, in my heart, I, I, joy, I find joy in living for God. I live for his greatness. That's what moves me. That's what motivates me to do what I do. I want and I need God to be front and center in everything I do in my life. I want to live for his kingdom. I want his kingdom to come. I want his will to be done. And so that's the way I live. God wants our heart's desire to be about living for his glory and loving him and serving him. Do you live that way? Is that the way you live your life? Do you relate to your husband or do you relate to your wife in a way that pushes the glory of God forward? Do you live that way for his glory? Or is it your glory? Do you relate to your children in a way that elevates them to the glory of God? Or is it all about you? Do you want your neighbor somehow to begin to see God in you? And so you live in such a way that you let your light shine before men and it brings glory to your Father in heaven, points people to Jesus. Do you use your possessions and your money and your time and your energies for the glory of God? And, and these aren't on your outline, but the second command is love your neighbors yourself, right? That's, the, that's how Jesus summed up really the rest of the commandments. Love your neighbors yourself. And so because God is in his rightful place in my life, he's Lord, he's on the throne of my life, now I am freed to be part of what he would like to do in the world and in my life. And I'm no longer living this inward life that's all about me. Now, because God is in his rightful place, I'm motivated for the needs by the needs of others and serving them. I, I don't just live for my interests and what makes me comfortable and what's nice and best for me, but I, I, I and this is on your outline, my heart not just my mind, is engaged in the lives of the people that God in his sovereignty has placed in my path. The people that are my neighbor are the people that I'm to serve, the people that I see in my neighborhood and at work and at school and, and in my family. Those are the people God wants me to reach out to and love with open arms. And Jesus needed to give them an example. And so look at verse 36. He took a little child and had him stand among them. And in taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And so this is like an acted out parable right in front of their eyes. And to the disciples, what's really, uh, what I'm sure nailed the disciples is that in Aramaic, the language Jesus was speaking, the word child and servant are the same word. And so, in other words, what Jesus is saying is the disciples must accept his children, other servants and disciples, with open arms and love them with the same love that he's loving this child and accepting this child. 
There was no thought of, of who was better than whom. It was simple, open-armed affection that Jesus was telling the disciples they needed to have. Jesus said that when they did this in his name, they welcomed not only Jesus, but as the text says, but the one who sent him. God the Father. Why is this? Because Jesus the Father lives in us, God's children, through his Holy Spirit. And that's what makes us the church, the body of Christ. And we're to receive all God's people as we receive children unto us, as we accept them and hold them and love them. And they don't have accomplishments to give us. They don't have influence for us or fame. We just receive them because they're God's children. And, and, and this rules out seeking people for what they can do for us. And it's a warning about neglecting the simple and the humble. Jesus' half-brother James gives a great example of this. I'm going to read it from James chapter 2. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him and you say to the man in the suit, sit here, sir, this is the best seat in the house, and either ignore the street person or say, better sit here in the back row. Haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? Wow. So if we want to be spirit-filled, if we want to have a, we all as spirit-filled believers have a divine mandate to be lovers of everyone, to open our arms to everyone and receive those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. But at the same time, uh, and this leads us to number two, and let me just say one other thing before we leave this one. This means that we need to have open arms even to those we disagree with politically. That's not always easy. But this is what God calls us to. And then the second thing, this leads us to the second thing on the outline, we're to do ministry with a tolerant attitude. So let me begin this little section by saying that we, and this is on your outline, we are to test the spirits. We are, we are called to do that. John writes in 1 John 4, 1, Dearly loved friends, don't always believe everything you hear just because someone tells you it's a message from God. Test it first to see if it really is, for there are many false teachers around. Boy, isn't that the truth, even today. You know, I talk to someone and they say they believe God and I'm going, great. Tell me about the God you believe in somewhere in the conversation. And oftentimes, you know what I find out? It's not the God of the Bible. It's a God that's way different from the God of the Bible. That's the God they say they believe in. And I've learned to say the same thing when people say they believe in Jesus. Tell me about the Jesus you believe in. And I find it's often a Jesus that is in their mind, but it doesn't look like the Jesus in the Bible. And so we need to make sure that we communicate with people about who, we need to test the spirits. And then also on your outline, we'll know people by the fruit their lives produce. That's what it says in Matthew 7. We don't naively accept everyone who says they believe in God for being genuine Christians. I hope they are, I hope they do, but we need to communicate with them to find out and make sure their message is consistent with the kingdom of God, with what the Bible teaches if they're not believers, we need to open our arms and, and, and preach the gospel to them. They need to hear the good news of Jesus. Uh, 
John and the other apostles are, are ministering. They've seen this man ministering in Jesus' name and they stop him from ministering in Jesus' name. Why? Basically because he wasn't a part of their group. And look at Jesus, what he says in verse 39. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. So think about this man. We don't know much about this man. We just know what he said here. But on the positive side, we can say he knew about Jesus. We can say he had somehow been influenced by him. We can say that he had a strong faith and was ministering to other people and even willing to take on kind of hard situations like someone who's demon-possessed and try to cast out those demons in Jesus' name. But he was stopped by the apostles. And, and the disciples, what Jesus is saying, they, they were too narrow, they were too exclusive by denying someone the opportunity to serve just because they weren't part of their group. So why are we intolerant of other people? Think about that. Maybe we insist that people agree with us, and if they don't agree with us, then we're intolerant against them. We don't want to hear from them. Or or maybe it's a sense of authority. We think so highly of ourselves that it's our way or the highway. We are the great defenders of the faith. So if they don't agree with us, then they're wrong. They need to be shunned. Or... Maybe somebody questions or opposes us, our position. And so we find him unacceptable. Or maybe it's jealousy or envy. Uh, you know, we see somebody that has a spiritual gift that we wish we had, or they have a position we wish we had. And, and, and we think, wow, I, I, we're maybe silent about that jealousy. Or maybe we're not so silent about the jealousy. Who, who a person is spiritually, for example, or what position they have, might be desired by someone. And so we just think, well, we, we write them off. One of the things we can see about this situation is at least John was concerned enough about what he had said, what he had done, that he brought it to Jesus. That's a positive. And asked Jesus about, look, verse 38. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. And then, again, I love Jesus' response in verse 39. Don't stop him. And then Jesus lays down conditions of tolerance. For no one does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. <clears throat> so Jesus does, not, does lay down conditions for being tolerant. You've got them on your outline. The first one is, if a person does, does not speak evil of Christ... In other words, they're positive about their, their view of Jesus. This shows that they're ministering in Christ's name. And if someone does speak evil of Christ, they're an enemy and to be rejected as a believer. But again, that just means we need to have open arms and receive him as an unbeliever to share Jesus with them. And the second condition is that, uh, is that be, to be tolerant if a man is not against Christ and his disciples if a man is not against Christ and his disciples. Forever is not against us, is for us, says in verse 40. Jesus says this in Luke 16, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. 
And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. And then the third condition is to be tolerant if someone shows kindness to Jesus' followers. Verse 41. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. In contrast to the destructive consequences of pride, Jesus' final point is that genuine humility is expressed in small acts of kindness. It's just small things. It's like giving a cup of water to drink to those who follow him. So, you know, in thinking about the heart of this passage, I go back to that child uh, in, in verses 36 and 37. Well, what does the child represent? The child has really nothing they can offer. No power, no status, no reward. And so in, in receiving that child and loving that child and serving that child, you have to give up all those things. They're no longer there for you. The child has nothing to give you, nothing in it for you. And this is the humility that Jesus is talking about when he says, when he, when, in this passage, that, that he's saying to his disciples, if you want to understand the kingdom, you need to understand this about the kingdom. And you understand then why the Father sent me. I'm humbling myself to go to the cross. And that's the humility you need to live your life with. And this is the humility God's talking about when he says, I resist the proud and I give grace to the humble. And we can say then by the grace of God, what we can say is this, I reach out to love and serve this child of God, this person, and to minister to them with the full knowledge that there's no return for me. Because all the things that I might wrongly want that I'm attracted to, to be the center I don't get from a child. And Jesus doesn't want us to get that from thinking we're going to get that from anybody. It's not offered here. It's not offered with a child. And so when you're there then, God is saying your heart is being transformed to be like me. In our nature, we're sinners. And as sinners, servanthood, servanthood is not something that we run after. It's not our first choice. For us sinners, servanthood is counterintuitive. We're unable to do it. But that's why God has given us his Holy Spirit to do it through us, to give us the power to do it. And so as we look at this passage, we say, I'm unable to do this. But that's when we run to the cross. This just underlines the necessity of the grace that we find in Jesus at the cross. It's only by grace that I will find joy in being last. It's only by grace that I will find joy in serving even when I don't get recognition. It's only by grace that I will live for the, for the greatness of another and not for myself. It's only by grace. It's only by grace. But God is able and God is willing and that grace is ours as we run to the cross. That's where we find forgiveness. 
That's where we find deliverance. That's when we find the power to live this out. Think about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, not only does this passage remind us of the heart of your mission, but it reminds us of the depth of our own need. We are sinners in need of grace. Thank you, Father, for the rescuing grace of the cross. Thank you that you take by your grace people who live for themselves like us and you transform us into people who will live in willing, worshipful service of you and willing, sacrificial love of our neighbor. And anyone who lives that way is surely a trophy of your grace. Give us that grace today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Well, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. Thank you for being here. Enjoy some fellowship together.